chapter 1, from verse 1 to 13. The first 13 verses of the Gospel according to Mark. I'm reading in the standard version. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, even as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ye ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came, who baptized in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance unto remission of sin. And there went out unto him all the country of Judea and all they of Jerusalem. And they were baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and had a leathern girdle about his loins and did eat locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There cometh after me he that is mightier than I, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I baptized you in water, but he shall baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens rent asunder and the Spirit as a dove descending upon him and a voice came out of the heavens thou art my beloved son in thee i am well pleased and straightway the spirit driveth him forth into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness forty days tempted of satan and he was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered unto him well now, this evening, we come to the outline of this gospel according to Mark. You will see that here on the chart I have not tried to go beyond the first 13 verses of Mark. And I was told by someone that if I go along like this we shall be about two years on the, on the gospel according to Mark. But we, I don't think we shall be because I shall try, or seek to try, and do the next section, which is a very large section, uh, in at least one evening, uh, if not two. But this, these first uh, uh, ver verses of Mark are, in fact, absolutely tremendous. And um, I think that it would be well worthwhile for us to stop and uh, consider them a little more uh, fully. Before we start on the actual outline, I would like to make just a few points. First of all, there is no easily found pattern in the Gospel according to Mark, being, as we have already noted, uh, uh, a series of incidents told in rapid succession 
it's uh, very hard to find uh, um, a pattern within it. It's not like Matthew, it's not like Luke. Luke particularly has a very real literary style. And it's not like John that has a very clear design in the way the material is presented, as we also found out, of course, in our studies uh, in Matthew. Mark is more of a journalistic account. Uh, it's as if um, uh, he's a reporter uh, on something, an eyewitness, and he notes down incident after incident after incident, uh, now and again some of the discourses, but very little. Um, and uh, uh, therefore, it is more of uh, a journalist's account than a teacher's uh, uh, account. There are some broad lines of demarcation. For instance, from chapter 1 to chapter um, 9, we have ministry, Christ's ministry, in Galilee and district. That's a broad line of demarcation we can make, the first nine chapters. And then chapter 10 stands on, it, on its own because it is ministry in what we call Perea, or that is beyond the Jordan. That is the area, um, you know, they, the Jews wouldn't go through Samaria because of the Samaritans. So they came over the River Jordan and came down that side to Judea. They went through Decapolis, the area of the ten cities, and Perea, which was often called, in colloquial language, beyond the Jordan. And so that chapter 10 more or less deals uh, with ministry there. And then from chapter 11 to chapter 16, we have ministry in Jerusalem. In fact, from chapter 11, the first verse of chapter 11, really it is all to do with the last week of our Lord's earthly life. So those are the broad lines of demarcation we can find anyway in this gospel. Now, in fact, and this is a point I want to underline, this journalistic style, as we've described it, um, of Marx, is, in actual fact, precisely what the Holy Spirit required in order to present us with the picture of Christ as the servant of the Lord in a life of incessant service from beginning to end. If it had been more sort of, uh, in one sense, thought out, in, in the sense of it being put into sort of uh, pigeonholes, it wouldn't have given us that uh, uh, impression. But it's just this very journalistic style, this rapid style, this eyewitness uh, style, uh, this keeping of our attention the whole time, this watching of the Lord in ceaseless activity that brings to us the real uh, impression of what service is like. Here is someone who asks of us service, but he's not someone who doesn't know anything about it. He's not someone who's been brought up in some palatial uh, 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 circumstances in which he is, has always been waited upon and looked after. Here is someone who knows to the nth degree what service means. And uh, Mark, of course, with his attention to detail, to gestures, to uh, reactions, to all these other things, he brings home to us 
the kind of service that God exercises or fulfills. I wish I could put it more clearly. Anything uh, else, any other way of presenting uh, the story would have obscured the design of the Holy Spirit. As it is, a living and dynamic, a tremendously powerful impression is made upon us of the heart and the character and the principles of divine service as we behold them in Christ. Uh, one other little point I'd like to make before we pass on to the outline. We ought to note that the gospel has a very real turning point within it. It is in chapter 8 and it is verse um, 27 and 28. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he charged them to tell no one about him. Now, in actual fact, this incident was the turning point in the ministry and service of the Lord Jesus. From that point on, he began to speak to them about his supreme task and work which was to sacrifice himself on the cross. You see, verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And then again, verse 34, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Um, you'll find it in a number, number of other instances. Chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man should have risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And then, um, again, uh, chapter 9, verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man will be delivered up into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Or chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And after three days... He will rise again. Verse 45, For the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. 
So this point at Caesarea Philippi was the turning point in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we remember, if you, those of you who remember the studies in the Gospel according to Matthew will remember it was the turning point also in Matthew's account. Now, the outline I find in this Gospel the most helpful and the most harmonious, and I will say that Mark is notoriously difficult for finding uh, a clear outline. And you look through the books and you'll find they've all got the problem, every one of them. But the most, uh, the outline I personally find the most helpful and the most harmonious is fourfold. First of all, here, chapter 1, the first 13 verses, which I have entitled, The Servant of the Lord Presented. And then from chapter 1, verse 14, to chapter 10, verse 52, The Servant of the Lord at Work. That is the largest section of the Gospel. And I think that's, uh, I've thought a lot about it. It sounds a bit mundane, the servant of the Lord at work. Perhaps it would be better to say the servant of the Lord ministering. But I don't know. I think at work is the best, is the best way to describe the style in which Mark is written. It is precisely that. It is the servant of the Lord at work. And then um, from chapter 11, verse 1, to chapter 15, verse 47, the servant of the Lord, obedient unto death. And finally, chapter 16, from 1 to 20, the whole chapter, the servant of the Lord, exalted. Well, that's the fourfold outline I find the most harmonious and the most helpful. Well now this evening these first 13 uh, verses. Um, first of all if you will take the gospel according to Mark and open it at chapter 1 and verse 1. First of all the superscription or the opening. I called it the opening or superscription. Just the first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It has been often and often thought that this first verse was the original title to Mark. It was in fact entitled, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This may well be. Certainly, it sums up the entire contents of the book. Every word of this brief sentence, so brief, so simple, is pregnant with meaning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's just look at it. First of all, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I think most of you know this word gospel just means good news. Good news. The gospel is good news. It's not news about God's wrath. This is a, a mistaken conception of so many Christians. It is not news about God's wrath upon sin. News about God's judgment upon evil doing. It is not news about hell. 
It is not news about the uh, fury of God that will finally come upon all who will not uh, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, who will not believe. That's not the gospel. You've got that in the Old Testament. You've got that throughout the Bible. The gospel is the good news of God's mercy. It is the good news of his compassion. It is the good news of his abounding love. It is the good news of his grace. It is the good news of his comfort. In one word, it is the good news of his salvation. Now, this is why the Lord Jesus continually, right through this, in his services, I've not come to judge, I've come to save. I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. The whole accent is upon God's redeeming love, God's delivering love, God's rescuing grace. The whole accent is upon the positive side of God's mercy shown toward us all. It is the gospel, I'm afraid, I suppose I might uh, speak for some others. The being brought up in the kind of home I was brought up in, I hated the word gospel. It seemed to me that it, it was something old-fashioned queer that people sang in little tin huts. The uh, ladies who sort of looked frowsy and frumpy, to rather put it crudely, sort of poured in to listen about. I was a boy, that's what I thought the gospel was all about. So much so that when I became a Christian I hardly ever used the word gospel because I always thought of gospel hall with all the connotations. It has been more recently I've come to realise what a beautiful word gospel is. Good Good news concerning God's salvation. Now, this book of Mark is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. He came not denouncing us, not threatening us with judgment, but to proclaim the unmerited grace and love of God for all came to, as it were, revealed to us not only by word, but in action. The desire of God to deliver a, a, any man or woman who would only appeal to him. That's why the book is filled, filled with the acts, the mighty acts of God, healing this one, casting out devils and demons, moving around, as it were, just delivering, freeing, giving back sanity, giving back health. It is the gospel the revelation of the kind of person God is, not desiring the destruction of any man or woman, but their deliverance, their salvation. And then the second thing, dear friend, look at it. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus is the Greek form of the Aramaic Jeshua or the Hebrew, Joshua, or Jehoshua. That's all. It was one of the most common names in Israel. Still is. Joshua. 
So Jesus' name was Joshua, really. Jeshua. I mean, we know it in the Greek form, Jesus. Mary never called him Jesus. She called him Jeshua. Yeshua. The Lord is our salvation. Or the Lord is our saviour. But it was such a common name. Without being moved like the name John today, or David, or Michael. A common name. Many, many people have that name. And that's why, mark you, Jesus is always denoted as coming from Nazareth of Galilee. There were so many Joshua's. So they always said, Jesus of Nazareth, just to get it clear. Now, of course, you would have thought, well, this Jesus would be known everywhere. But you see, they said, well, there's only one really powerful Joshua from Nazareth. Maybe many others were influential in the life of the nation, but there's only one really powerful Joshua from Nazareth. So you've got it in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Later on, he was known just as Jesus of Nazareth. Even the demons called him. We know who you are, Joshua, Jeshua from Nazareth. Because it was such a common name, all the common people called him Jesus from Nazareth. Of course, it was his human name. As partaker of flesh and blood with us. Now, this good news of God's salvation, this good news of God's abounding love and mercy toward us, it's all to do with a human being, Jesus. Absolutely human, as human as you and I, indeed more so. For there was a sense in which the Lord Jesus was the only true human being who's ever lived. The rest of us have been perverted and corrupted into something else. Truly man of man, truly human, Jesus. But it's more than that. It is the name that denotes his mission, the name that denotes his task, his service, in Matthew 1, verse 21, call his name Jeshua, Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The name has meaning. The Lord is our salvation. The Lord is our Savior. Emmanuel, God with us. So again, it is the good news of Jesus the Savior. Then again, I want you to notice that it is the good news of Jesus Christ. And again, it is good for us to stop this evening and think for a moment or two. This word Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah. Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one. The anointed one. And unfortunately, most of us now think of Christ as a kind of surname, Jesus Christ. We don't understand that it denotes his calling. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, Messiah. Messiah, Jesus. Do try to get the idea of Christ as a surname out of your mind. It's not anything. He has only one name, Jesus. That's his name. Christ is a title, <coughs> Messiah, a description. 
of his calling. He is the anointed one. Now, what does that mean? Well, of course, again, we have the well-known messianic title, Son of Man. Whenever the word Son of Man was used amongst Jews, it always denoted the Messiah. They understood that quite clearly. They could refer, of course, to one another, Son of, son of Man, but the Son of Man was the most long-awaited and long-promised, uh, predicted Messiah. It was great David's greater son, the Messiah. Now, the whole of the Old Testament is comprehended by this word Messiah. Jesus separated and anointed for a special task as God's servant. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee for living and for dying. Now we may have something to learn here that the Holy Spirit came upon the Lord Jesus not only for living but for dying. I think most of us forget that very simple little point. It was by the eternal spirit he offered himself up to God without spot or blemish. And we are told in Romans 8 that by the spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. The Holy Spirit came upon him. He was anointed not only for living but for dying so that he might really fulfill the service God had given to him. Oh, well, I hope we understand a little more the good news, good news of Jesus, the Messiah. But let's go further. It is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The declaration of Jesus, the Messiah, as the Son of God, God the Son. Now, this is full of divine significance. When we realize that Mark emphasizes Christ as servant. It is God the Son who became man, the Son of Man, and the servant of the Lord. Now, we have already mentioned this, but I, I, I say it again, because in a few verses further on, we have again the second declaration at the very outset of this book of Jesus Christ as Son of God. So much so that some commentators have said, surely this gospel according to Mark is not Jesus as the servant of the Lord, but Jesus as the Son of God. But you see, as I have said, this is just the very, our real understanding of service can only um, come through a, 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 the significance and understanding of revelation, the significance of this. He was the Son of God. He was God the Son who became the servant of the Lord. If God the Son can become the servant of the Lord, how much more can you and I? If God the Son can humble himself, how much more can you and I? If God the Son can give himself up to the needs of men and women, how much more you and I? If God the Son can wash the disciples' feet, how much more you and I? This is the whole point. God is not on the throne like some distant despot or autocrat who demands a kind of slavishly carried out service. You just do exactly what I say. I'm God and you are just one of my saved slaves. 
No, not at all. God is not interested in any kind of service like that. If he if he'd wanted that kind of service, he could have he could have destroyed the whole world and man with it and started all over again with a kind of automatic machine type. You know, a built-in slavery. So that we all pressed button machines and did exactly what he wanted. No, God is not interested. He has a character. His character is love. And because that character of love is expressed in spontaneous giving, spontaneous service. He desires the same character in us. He will have nothing less than that. He will not accept any other kind of service than that. We, he puts his finger right on the source of service. Not something we do as a kind of grudging duty, but something we do because we are sons. And because willingly, as sons, we give up our rights and become servants. If a son of God can give up his rights and become a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, that one will, uh, will be uh, brought into the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the throne of God. That's the gospel. And then again, it is not only the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why, well, we can stop there and look at all kinds of scriptures. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Just think about that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. But now I want you to go back to the first word, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, uh, the Messiah, the Son of God. Beginning. Now, there's a great argument about this word beginning. There are those scholars who say that this word beginning refers only to the immediately succeeding verses. Phillips, for instance, renders it like that. He puts it, the gospel of Jesus Christ begins with the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. Okay? Others say that it's not the prophecy that it begins with, but it begins with John coming, crying in the wilderness, baptizing people predicting the coming of the Lord immediately. Now, what does this word beginning really, uh, uh, to what does it refer? Is it to be connected with these immediately succeeding verses? Or is it a description of the whole contents of this gospel according to Mark? Now, this word beginning is the same be word beginning in the beginning was the word at the same, the idea is origin, the active cause, if you like. Now, what does it really mean? Well, in my estimation, for what it's worth, it does refer to the immediately succeeding verses, but it also refers to the, it's a good description of the entire contents of the gospel according to Mark. For instance, 
It is perfectly true that the gospel begins with fulfilled prophecy. The gospel begins with the advent of the herald of the Christ, John the Baptist. The gospel begins with his baptism and his anointing. The gospel begins with his testing and his proving. The gospel began when he went out saying, repent and believe in the gospel. But it is also a description of the whole of this book of Mark. I like to look of it. I like to look at it like that. This is the origin of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is how it began. Put it this way. This is how it was created. This is how it was created. This is how it was produced. Before your eyes, Mark unfolds the creation of the gospel, the origin of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ. What he did, what he said, what he was, that's the gospel, the good news of God's salvation. And therefore I love to think of it like that. Here this gospel according to Mark is the, the opening verse is this, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. What do we find as we go on? Surely we've got a suggestion of it in the very last chapters of uh, last chapter of Mark, chapter 16. And uh, verse 15, he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. Verse 17, these signs shall accompany them that believe. Verse 20, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word by the signs that followed. Amen. This, this is the beginning of the gospel. Now, as the gospel ends, this book ends, it is the onward triumphant march of the gospel through history. It's just less left like that. They went. Now, of course, it's very interesting that in that little alternative reading, which some believe to be the ending uh, of Mark, we read this. They reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they'd been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Well, now, whether you feel that is the right ending or not of the Gospel according to Mark, the fact is the whole impression of both uh, the ending we have in our normal versions and the other is that you've got the onward march, the triumphant onward march of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is the beginning of it, the origin of it. I find the same thing in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 where it says, the former the treatise, O Theophilus, I wrote to you about all those things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Acts was the continuation. Mark, we have no continuation to Mark. But there's a sense in which you and I are the continuation to Mark. The church of God is the continuation to Mark. Here we have the origin of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel. Well, I hope that helps us.
just a little. In this book, then, we see Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as the servant of the Lord, producing, creating the gospel. So we should watch this record and see before our eyes the formation of something which was entrusted to us. Now the second thing is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The next two verses. Let's just read them. Here we have it. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. Verse 2, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now in the older manuscripts, it is not as in the authorised version. I don't know how many of you have got the authorised version this evening, but you will see that it says, in the prophets, as it says, as it is written in the prophets. Now, the revised version, the American Standard Version, the revised Standard Version, the New English Bible, nearly all the modern versions after the authorised version, all put the older reading in as it is written in Isaiah, in the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, this is all the more extraordinary, and it has been suggested, and I think probably rightly, that some very dear Christian scribe uh, cut out Isaiah and put in the prophets because he noted, with a sharp and shrewd eye, that the first quotation was not Isaiah. It was Malachi. So now we have a problem. We are told, as it is written in the prophecy of Isaiah, and the first quotation is Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and you will not find it anywhere in the whole of Isaiah, however much you try. And the second is from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. I think it is most significant that it is called Isaiah. If we read it this way, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah. And that's precisely the thought behind it. There's some hint here, surely, of the fulfillment of those tremendous prophecies concerning the servant of the Lord, which were the burden of Isaiah's ministry. Let's read just a few of them, shall we? <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, Get thee up on a high mountain, O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem. Lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Now just forget the word good tidings and substitute the word gospel, which it is. O thou that tellest the gospel to Zion, get thee up on a high mountain. O thou that tellest the gospel to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold thy God. Now you've got the same thing if you turn to chapter 61, verse 1 to 3. 
chapter 61, verse 1 to 3. The Spirit and the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, that is the word from which we get the, the word Messiah, anointed me, to preach the gospel, good tidings, unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to give unto them, uh, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them a garland for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. There you have, I think, uh, some hint in the very beginning of the gospel according to Mark of the fulfillment of these very scriptures. But turn back and see just a few more. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delighted. I have put my spirit upon him. That's Christ. Anointed him. Messiah. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry, nor lift up his voice, nor cause it to be heard in the street. A bruised reed will he not break, and a dimly burning wick will he not quench. He will bring forth justice in truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set justice in the earth, and the isle shall wait for his law. Chapter 49, verse 5. Chapter 49, verse 5. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, and that Israel may be gathered unto him, for I am honourable in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Yea, he said, it is too light a thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful, even the Holy One of Israel, who hath chosen thee. Then chapter 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal wisely, he shall be exalted and lifted up, and shall be very high. Like as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they understand. Chapter 53 and verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By the knowledge of himself shall my righteous servant justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now all those who know anything about Isaiah know that this mysterious servant of the Lord is found throughout its pages. It has been one of the great mysteries of uh, the centuries. The rabbis have wrestled over it as well as Christian uh, theologians and scholars. Who really is this servant of the Lord? We know who the servant of the Lord is. And surely it is not without meaning that at the very beginning of Mark it says the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophecy of Isaiah. Deliberately knowing that the first quotation would be Malachi.
Again you have it if you turn back to earlier chapters. Not the servant, but surely you've got this whole thought here fulfilled in Christ. Chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and uh, behold, a virgin shall conceive, and shall bring forth, bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Chapter 9, verse 1, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he made it glorious by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. How wonderful then it is in verse 9 of chapter 1. Then came Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah saw that the only way that the purpose of God from eternity to eternity could be realized, the only way Zion, not just the uh, literal Zion, but the Zion that the, 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 the literal Zion symbolized, the dwelling place of God, the place of the throne of God, the place of the feet of God, which he would make glorious. The only way that that Zion could be um, built, could be established, could be obtained, was by the coming of the suffering and triumphant servant of the Lord, who would give his life to deal with sin, to justify the sinner, and to realize that purpose of God from before times eternal. That's Isaiah. And here we have it at the beginning of the gospel according to Mark. It is surely not without significance that Isaiah, who speaks more than any other prophet of the Messiah as the servant of the Lord, we have it in the beginning of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophecy of Isaiah. I say that is not without very real significance. To me it is marvellous. And then what about that quotation from Malachi? Well, that's just as marvellous. For if you turn to Malachi and chapter 3 and verse 1, we read this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom ye desire, behold, he cometh, saith the Lord of hosts. You have two messengers here. First, the messenger who prepares the way for the messenger of the covenant. The messenger of the covenant is the Messiah. The messenger, the other messenger, is the one who prepares his way. Now, in the beginning of Mark, in the first quotation, we have the quotation which has been fulfilled in John the Baptist. But isn't it interesting, this word messenger, this word messenger is really servant. Jesus was the messenger of God, the messenger of the covenant. He came crying, repent and believe in the gospel. And in the end, he turns us into messengers, servants. When he sends us forth from east to west, 
to proclaim the message of imperishable salvation, of eternal, everlasting salvation. Well, I say again, that's rather uh, wonderful. It's to do with service again. It's the same thought which is much more exhaustively dealt with in Isaiah. Therefore, in the earliest manuscripts, it was as it is written in Isaiah. There, our minds then are not just directed to the particular fulfillment of these prophecies in John the Baptist. That is the particular fulfillment that we have in these first two verses in John the Baptist. But our minds are directed to a far, far greater and more wonderful fulfillment that is the whole gospel according to Mark. The servant of the Lord, anointed with the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the gospel, is presented to us as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. Now, the third thing, the herald of the Lord's servant. That is from verse 4 to verse 8. The quotations from Malachi and Isaiah in verses 2 and 3 introduce the herald of the Messiah, of whom they particularly speak. It's quite clear from verse 5 that uh, John the Baptist's ministry produced no small revival. If you read it in a modern version, you will see that it is a marvellous description. It's rather obscured in the authorised version and in the revised. It speaks of everyone coming out, or as the New English Bible says, flocking out, the whole countryside, flocking out all the time. It was like a, an unceasing stream as they came out and went back and came out. All of Jerusalem, all of Judea. It was no small revival. Both leaders and people. No one could disregard the ministry of John the Baptist. You remember, he had the whole, all the leaders there when he called them, you generation of vipers. Who told you to, to flee from the wrath that is to come? They all came out. We have in these verses a threefold description of John the Baptist's ministry. First, what was the herald's ministry? The herald's ministry was first the preparation of a people. And we have that in verse 4. Here we have it. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance unto the forgiveness of sins. This preparation of a people was symbolized in this baptism of repentance unto remission of sins. Now will you all note something? In your authorized version. In your American stand, uh, Revised Standard Version, in the New English Bible, you have uh, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I think it is much better in the Revised Version and the American Standard Version, a baptism of repentance unto remission of sins. That baptism of repentance didn't cancel out their sins. It was preparing them for the Saviour who alone could bring forgiveness of sin. And this was John the Baptist's ministry. He was preparing a people for the coming of the Saviour. That's the verse. The second thing is, he was, he, the second aspect of his ministry was the heralding of Christ. Verse 7. 
when he said, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the thong of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, very few people, that I think to very few people, that means anything. Why? Because you just think of it as a rather humble utterance of a great man of God. But in actual fact, to the people who heard it, it must have been startling. And it is quite extraordinary that all four Gospels mention this as one of the only things we know, now on record, of John the Baptist's ministry. He was such a tremendous preacher. He moved the whole nation. That for him to continually talk, he must have repeated it again and again, there's one coming after me, I'm not even worthy to unbuckle his sandal. It must have stuck in everyone's mind. You see, it was the slave's job and the poorest and generally the most aged and decrepit, the one who'd lost his teeth and uh, was half blind and was very shaky in the hand, to be left at the gate to untie the sandal of, of, of guests and visitors. Um, there was nothing else they could do. They just sat like some old crone at the gate waiting for the guest to come. And then they shuffled forward and took your sandals off and you went into another more sprightly slave who washed your feet for you. Now John the Baptist used this illustration. He said, I'm not even worthy. I'm not even like one of those old people who's, who's really, real, really valuable service is over. I, I, I'm not even worthy, like one of those, to, to, um, who services over, to get down and tie, untie his sandal. It was the herald of something, a startling way of putting it. Someone is coming, someone is coming, someone who's going to eclipse me, someone who's going to eclipse all the ministry in the Old Testament. Someone is coming of whom the whole Old Testament speaks. He was the herald of the coming Messiah. And uh, then we have the description of Christ's ministry. In verse 8, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. How simple and how profound. Just as baptism in the River Jordan was the heart of John the Baptist's ministry, it, as it were, expressed all that he was trying to get at. Repentance and a remission of sins. So he described the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as being the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, not in the River Jordan, but in the Holy Spirit. The word can be either with, by, or in. I think in is better. Baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't it an extraordinary thing that this, this herald of the Messiah should single out this one thing as, for him, the heart of Messiah's ministry, of the Christ's ministry, of the Son of God's ministry. It's a question of how you look at it. The object of Christ's coming, the object of his life, the object of his supreme work, in dying on the cross and rising again, is that you and I might be joined forever to the Lord in the one Spirit. That you and I might know the release of God's life and nature within us, the release of Christ within us by the Spirit. 
You can know it no other way. A mighty release, a breaking out, not of your self-life, not the releasing of yourself, not freedom for your self-life, but the freedom for something else within to come out. From within you shall flow out rivers of living water. This spake he of the Holy Spirit. What are those rivers of living water? They're the very life and nature of God. The very life and nature of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. He who comes after me, he baptizes in the Holy Spirit. A mighty releasing, a rending of the flesh life. So that out from within can come the beauty and the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit. More than that, it means that we might be immersed in the fullness of God by the Holy Spirit. How can you and I be uh, really lost? Oh, sometimes our Christian life is so petty, so small, it's so little. We think of it as some little department almost. Something we can contain, something we can put a circle around, something we can handle, something that we can almost, as it were, explain away. Oh, for an experience that means that we are immersed in an ocean that is limitless and inexhaustible. To be lost in the greatness of God, to be lost in the infinity of God, to be simply surrendered to the greatness of God, that for me is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I can't understand people being afraid. Why be afraid of such a thing? Yes, of course we're afraid if it's our self-life because we can't be so surrendered without letting go of our self-life. Whilst we cling to our self-life, we can't know the fullness of God. Some of us would like to get the fullness inside of ourselves. But to me, there is something much more wonderful than getting a little bit of fullness inside of you. It's for you to be lost in the fullness. To be enveloped. To be swallowed up. To be overwhelmed, to be immersed, to be baptized. What do we do when we baptize someone? We push them under the water. They've gone. They are simply submerged in the water. And this is the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to take you and I and immerse us in the Spirit of God. Clothed with power from on high. And there again you have it. It is that you and I might become servants willingly, endued with power by the Spirit of God for the service of God. The heralding of the Messiah. I think that you and I must underline this simple little fact that when John the Baptist took, looked, as it were, over the whole panorama of Christ's coming ministry, the thing that he selected and said, this explains everything, was this. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. It is extraordinary. Of course, John, in John's Gospel, tells us uh, that he did say, Behold the Lamb of God. But it is quite extraordinary that in the other Gospels we're not told, now he's first going to die. <laughs> but... They go, John the Baptist went straight to the end of it. The end of his death. What his death achieved, what it won for us, what it, what it obtained for us. 
And this, dear friends, is the message of the early church, when again and again and again, not, I'm afraid, so often in the context of present time, but again and again they proclaim this simple message, he has ascended on high and led captivity captive and distributed gifts among men. Or again, he has received, God hath exalted him, and he has received the promise of the Father and hath poured forth this which ye see and hear. That's the message. The Lord Jesus Christ, through his finished work, through his death and through his mighty resurrection, has gone into heaven for us and obtained for us the Holy Spirit. What would you and I do without the Holy Spirit? We couldn't even weep a tear in repentance. Do you know that? We couldn't even weep a tear in repentance. We couldn't have one single stirring of divine faith in us. But for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we would know nothing at all of being born of God but for the Holy Spirit, let alone for the much more that there is. Don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who unlocks everything that's in Christ for you. Don't be afraid of him. I don't know what people are afraid for. He's like a dove, so gentle. And he won't touch you unless you're ready. He won't touch you unless you're ready. Well, I, perhaps we should end there this evening. It's a, uh, we haven't even finished these thir 13 verses. That just shows you, doesn't it? Um, we'll have to talk next week about this matter of the Lord's baptism and anointing because that's exactly, it follows on in the story from this, you see. When the Lord went down into the waters of baptism, he didn't need to repent, and he needed no forgiveness for sins. But when he went down into those waters of baptism and took his place there as identified with God's saving purpose and identified with us in all our helplessness and need, God anointed him. God anointed him. The Holy Spirit came like a dove abode upon him. That's how it must be for you and me if we are to know much of this uh, uh, service of God. If you and I want to know what the service of God really is, then we've got to know something uh, about this. For the service of God can never be fulfilled without the anointing of God. So do remember that. You see, one thing is character. We all need character. For service is determined by our character. If there is spiritual ca character and spiritual history, then the quality of our service is going to be determined by that. But we can have the character and we can have the history without the anointing. And then we may have all the character in the world and all the history in the world and, in many ways, a lot of experience. But we have not got the anointing. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, with all his character, with all his nature, 
with all that he was, all his history, even he needed the anointing. There's a little word for us all. Not to be afraid of the anointing, because we, we must understand a little more when we look at it next week, just what the anointing is. Shall we pray together? <clears throat> Lord, as we bow in thy presence, we do ask thee that thou wilt somehow, through what we have looked at this evening, write something on our hearts, Lord. We all need thee. We need something from thee, Lord. And we pray that, Lord, thou wilt, in thy mercy and love, thou who hast saved us, and thou who hast kept us, thou wilt bring every one of us to the place where we know what it is to serve. Now, Lord, thou art the only one who can do that by a revelation through thy spirit to our hearts of the kind of person thou art and of the kind of service thou dost desire. We remember that wonderful occasion when the heavens were torn open and the Spirit of God descending as a dove came upon our Lord Jesus Christ as thy servant. And those words of thine, thou art my beloved son, in thee I delight. O Father, help every one of us, we pray, to know such a kind of service that thou canst anoint us, that we may be empowered and enabled to fulfill that position, that place that thou hast given us in thy work. And we ask it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.